When we worked in the Congo from 1961 get on their cell phone and call us in the middle of the night. So a lot of things have changed since we were in Africa. But I want to just tell you the story of how God enabled us to build a comprehensive health service. It was basically Congolese. Christian, and sustainable. And you'll see it took a long, long time, a lot of work, and an enormous amount of prayer, but still functioning in an almost non-functional country. So, oh goodness, the way I wander... You may just well stay right up front here. <laughs> okay. I'll try to stay a little more stable. Uh, this is where what we're talking about. It's now called the Democratic Republic of the Congo. When we left the United States, it was still the Belgian Congo, then became the Republic of Congo, and then had that famous name called Zaire, which some of you may remember. When they kicked out Mobutu, they went back to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we were in a bush hospital about 250 air miles from the capital of Kinshasa. Uh, Savannah, a uh, bush hospital, but in a fairly populated area. The hospital that I inherited from my missionary predecessors was about 100 beds, extremely poorly built, poorly equipped, but very functional. I was the doctor. We had two American nurses, one of whom was my wife, who then had two children. The other was Virginia Nickerson, who came from California and had a master's degree in nursing and midwifery and was a marvelous help. And the other half a dozen were Congolese. We had 200,000 people to serve. Well, let's do it this way. Uh, this was our situation, roughly 3,000 square miles. It took three days for anyone to come from here to the hospital. There was no transportation. There was a system of dirt roads, uh, rather poorly maintained. There were hardly any vehicles. Uh, and so uh, walking was the only transport available to the vast number of people. Uh, this blue line was the beautiful Quilu River, quite a large navigable river, 
but which was a geographic barrier for us to get from here over to here. Uh, and these were all my people. These were the ones I was sent out there to care for. I was responsible for their health. I was also responsible for three other smaller hospitals in that area. And periodically I would fly by Mission Aviation Fellowship plane to one of these other hospitals for three or four days to do medicine and surgery. And I think it was in February 62, I was away, and our 10-month-old boy Paul decided that was a good time to get sick. And he got pneumonia, and he was quite sick. High fever and uh, wheezing and, and dyspnea and intercostal retraction, you know, the whole story. And so there was Miriam, wondering what in the world to do. And why wasn't I there? <clears throat> However, 300 yards down the road was our hospital. And it was directed by Paul Musiti, who was a Congolese graduate nurse. She, of course, sent for him. He came immediately and said, oh, Mama, Paul has pneumonia. He needs penicillin. So he came back. Now, if my wife were telling the story, this is what she would say. He came back with the longest, dirtiest needle she'd ever seen in her life. And she's a graduate of Columbia Presbyterian Nursing School and gave Paul a shot of penicillin. Well, it wasn't that long and it was clean and so forth. But anyway, <clears throat> all night long, she walked the floor with Paul in her arms, singing, praying, and pleading with God for help, and like I say, wondering why I wasn't there. Well, I came back the next day. Paul was already starting to improve, and he's now a water engineer in England and served with us for many years as a water engineer in Congo. But as Miriam was walking the floor, this is what she was thinking. Uh, I'm here at Vanga. The hospital is 300 yards down the road. Paul Musiti is there with penicillin. There are 20,000 other mothers out here who don't have a hospital they can walk to. They don't have a Paul Musiti. Or, they have nothing. And when their children convulse in the middle of the night, what do they do? And when I got back, we talked about that. And I knew I was taking care of only the people who lived within, say, 10 kilometers of the hospital, within walking distance of the hospital. And what in the world were we going to do about these people? We went to the Lord. I said, Lord, what do we do? The answer was quite clear. Do what I did. I said, okay, what did you do? And he said, oh, come on, read the book. <laughs> well, the book is Mark, chapter 1. What was the very first strategic move Jesus did when he came into Galilee to announce the good news of the kingdom? I mean, he came making that announcement, and then what did he do? He Sorry? He, he walked down to the lake, and he found four fishermen. 
He said, hey, guys, come. I want to train you. I said, okay, I can do that. I flew to Kinshasa, went to the health ministry, to the medical education section, told them who I was, where I was. I said, is it permissible for us to start a uh, auxiliary level nursing school? They said, sure. It's part of the national health plan. I said, okay, what's the curriculum? They handed me a sheet of paper with various courses on it. I said, fine. Now, where's the, uh, where are the course materials for this? That was the answer. There were none. Congo, of course, is a French-speaking country. There was zero in terms of textbooks of nursing or anything of that sort in French, except... In Belgium and France, but all just for European nurses. Nothing for Africa. And I said to the man, I said, well, there are other nursing schools. How do they teach? Oh, no, it's very simple. The doctors just get up or the nurses just get up. They give lectures and the students write notes in their uh, notebooks, and that's how they teach. I said, no, can't do that. So for a year, Jenny Nickerson, Miriam, and I burned a lot of midnight oil writing out all of these courses in French on a little old Smith Corona portable typewriter. They didn't have any French accents. But we knew if we were going to help students learn, they had to have notes, notes they could read and that then we could discuss together in class because that's how people learn. They do not learn when they're listening to a professor and trying to write notes in a notebook. Well, by September of 62, oh, we opened the school. Uh, had I realized in October 61, when I went to the government, all that it was going to take, I'm not sure I'd have had the courage. It's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, there's an enormous amount. It compromised my curative care, my surgical care. I had to take time off to do this. And so balancing priorities is one of the most difficult aspects of this kind of work. Which of the essential things that have to be done is the most important? And that can be hard. But I knew this is investing for the future. This is building sustainability. And so we did it. We actually were training nurse practitioners. uh, Because we were training them in curative care. Also in how to make a diagnosis and give treatment. And then certain preventive services, and community health, health education and working with communities and so the whole bit. Now, mind you, these were 17, 18-year-olds out of the eighth grade. And those eight grades were very poor education to begin with. So also built into this is a lot of compromise, How do you get to the level where people are and then try to move them to the level where you think they should be? Again, many difficult issues. 
And that's why I say prayer was an awful lot of this, and we would constantly go to the Lord and say, what do we do? But I want to insist on this, and if you don't take away anything else, take away this. The majority of sick people will never have access to a physician. In circles like this, and particularly in CMDA and so on, talking about missions and talking to young people who want to, I want to go train doctors. I want to go teach family practitioners. I want to go teach Africans to be surgeons. They're not going to get health care to the poor people. Do doctors get health care to the poor people in the United States? Oh, come on now. Do doctors take care of poor people in the United States? Only if they have Medicare or Medicaid. Doctors are not the answer to the health care that poor people need. In any country of the world, 90% of Congolese physicians, and now there's a couple thousand of them, treat only 10% of the population. So who's going to treat the other 90%? Well, the answer is there on the board, nurse practitioners. Those are the people we should be training. And it can be done. And they can take care of 90-plus percent of illnesses and refer the others to uh, the upper levels. I remember one afternoon late, the professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Rochester, where I was in medical school, had a golf engagement with the professor of pediatrics. And he went over to the pediatrics ward because Dr. Bradford hadn't yet finished, and Dr. Bradford was talking to a mother about how to handle diaper rash. And the professor of orthopedics was kind of just uh, ah, leaning on it. Never mind. <laughs> leaning on the cupboard there and just watching this interchange. Here's the professor of pediatrics. How many years of training he had, I don't know. But finally he finished and the lady went. And it was time to go play golf. And the professor of orthopedics said, Bill, you know, I'm impressed, deeply impressed. Uh, you've been to medical school. You've had a residency in pediatrics and I don't know how many fellowships to prepare you to be able to talk to a mother about how to take care of diaper rash. He said, that's impressive. And now in the States, it's incredible. And I must confess, I get amused. You go to see a doctor, you won't see a doctor in this country. You'll see who? Well, when you go to a doctor, who do you see? We don't have any Africans here. Who do you see? You see the PA. You see the nurse practitioner. And they do all of the work, and then when all of the work is done, then the internist will come in or the whoever it is will come in and look at what the, the nurse practitioner or the PA has done. We finally learned that lesson here in the United States. We learned it back in the early 60s. So uh, this is a marvelous opportunity to make disciples and to raise young people up as ministers of the good news of health. We did a three-year program, and now it has moved up to a 
uh, post-secondary uh, school level. The boys are trained as nurse practitioners to work out in the bush. The girls as nurses for hospitals or as midwives. So now in 1962, we had a nursing school. And here is what I consider an effective pyramid of health services. I don't know whether you over at the side can see. Uh, this came from Belgium. And I appreciate what the Belgians did in this sense. It's much better than the British ever did, or the French or the Portuguese. Professional people, small in number, diploma people, more of them, auxiliary level people like this, and here's the community. That way you can decentralize. That way you can get primary health care out to the people. I visited several French West African countries, like uh, Cote d'Ivoire and Burkina Faso, Niger, and so on. They'll have one medical school, one nursing school, one auxiliary level nursing school, and that's it. No way can they decentralize because these people are being trained to help the professional level. So uh, this is an effective model, and it has worked extremely well in the Congo. And there's communication with the community. Well, what does that say to us? We need to know how to train. I'd had no training in pedagogy. I had to learn it. Virginia Nickerson had. She knew how to teach. I learned. I read a lot of books. <clears throat> and became a, not a teacher, but a facilitator of learning, helping people learn, not just knowledge, but practical skills. Non-formal adult educational methods are extremely important. That's why we wrote all those courses, so that we could teach through dialogue, through interaction, helping them learn problem-solving, analysis, that type of thing. And I got my start in this through university and learning how to do an inductive Bible study. That was back in college in the early 50s. And I had no idea when I was learning that how valuable it was going to be. Learn how to lead an inductive discussion. How to draw ideas out of people and get them to look at the ideas together. And it works marvelously in Africa. Even short-term medical missions should have an educational component. That's another big story. Uh, then in the later 60s, we got involved in community health. I'm not going to go into that here. We'll talk about that tomorrow at 9 o'clock. Uh, this, of course, is extremely important working with people in the communities, helping them take responsibility for their health needs. By 66, we were having graduates from our nursing school so that now we could begin to establish other little curative care facilities throughout the area. Uh, and this is what happened. 
1975, we had, I think, 15. And these were just dispensaries, little clinics, bush clinics. They were built by church centers. There were churches throughout all this area, actually Catholic as well as Protestant, but of course we worked through the Protestant church network, and a church center would come and say we need a dispensary. And I would look at the situation, and if it seemed feasible, I'd say, fine, go ahead and build it. They built the building. They had to build a house for the nurse, and if there was a second person, another house, they did all of that, and then we would post one of our graduates out there, and then regularly uh, supply and supervise their work. And in the meantime, as I say, we were doing community health here. Uh, And then in 1971, we got our first grant. Got it from England. The Oxfam Foundation is a marvelous foundation. Uh, And they're... Congo representative happened to hear about what we were doing, came to see us, liked what we were doing because we were doing community health, and that's what they wanted to uh, encourage. And this young gentleman helped me learn how to write a grant request, and Oxfam approved it and sent us, I can't remember how much, maybe $100,000. But they said to us, that's your only grant. When that money's gone, don't come back to us. In other words, whatever you do with that money, make sure you're going to be able to carry it on when our money is gone, because you're not going to get any more from us. I deeply appreciated that. And I wish other donor agencies like USAID would do the same thing. Because that's avoiding dependency. And that's enabling... Uh, programs to carry on uh, over the long haul. So we then began adding certain preventive services, preschool clinics, antenatal clinics, the large program of vaccination, and so on, uh, to our whole system. And so by the mid-70s, this is what it looked like. These dispensaries were now health centers, curative care, but preschool clinics like I've mentioned. However, it left us a problem in between these areas, and basically this would be a two-hour walking distance, a maximum of two hours. And so many, many, many villages were unserved, probably up to 200 villages still with no health care. And we wondered, well, what are we going to do about that? But in 75, I got a rather amazing letter from the government provincial doctor. I knew this man fairly well. He'd been quite jealous of us because we could function when the government health service was not functioning. Uh, And it was somewhat difficult maintaining good relationships with this man, but we did. And now comes a letter from him saying, Doctor, we see what you're doing. We see the kind of care that you're giving to your church people. 
the government has many dispensaries in your area that are not functioning. Please take them over. I said, gee, thank you very much. (laughs) An enormous challenge. But as you can see, potentially the answer to our problem. Now, these were staffed by extremely poorly trained government men nurses, who for the most part were unpaid, who would occasionally get a box of medicine from the government they were supposed to give free of charge to patients. But of course, they put the medicines in their house and sold them to the patients and put the money in their pockets. Now, we call that dishonesty or corruption. They called it survival. They had a wife and kids. That was the only way they could get money. Now, they were to become part of our system. And so we asked ourselves, how can we take these men, retrain them, and upgrade their skills and so forth, and make them part of our system, which is a system based on accountability, responsibility, integrity, and so forth. Uh, So, we organized a six-week course and took them in small groups of about six. And we could only do a couple courses a year, so it took a number of years to get them all uh, retrained. And in that course, upgrading their curative skills and teaching them about antenatal clinics and that sort of thing. And management. And finance. And accountability. There's a wonderful textbook that is extremely effective for doing that. Uh, And you may want to write it down. It's called the Holy Bible. (laughs) I'm serious. Jesus said more about money than about salvation. There's a whale of a lot about money and accountability and response and planning in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. The point is this, and please listen. We would read, say, the parable of uh, the three servants who got you know, $10,000, $5,000, $1,000. We'd read that parable, and then I'd say, okay, what's Jesus trying to tell us about money here? And let them work on it. Let them discuss it. And, of course, I'd be asking them questions and getting them to think. And they came to see, you know, God's interested in money. God is watching what I do with money and medicine. Now, if I had simply told them these things, well, you know, I'm a white man, I'm from America, I'm rich, I dress well, and so forth, and it wouldn't have gotten in. But when they saw that, uh uh-uh, God said it, that makes an enormous difference. We talked about that in the session this morning. So, to sum it all up, it worked. Thirty men went through this. Two, we discovered, were congenital thieves. The other 28 did beautifully and went back to their former dispensaries, which were now health centers, and there it is. 
Now, the slogan that the World Health Organization came out with in 1978, Health for All, by the year 2000, we had it by 1985. It can be done. And you see, now, when a woman wakes up in the middle of the night and her child is convulsing, she just goes over the hill to here and gets malaria treatment or penicillin or whatever her child needs. Their needs are being, they have access to primary health care. And that was our goal. But training was an essential component of it and a well-organized system of good management, control, supervision, um, regular contacts, refresher courses, and all of that. So, a functioning health center within two hours distance of every village. Now, let me say that this was a fairly densely populated region, which was an advantage because it was economically viable, although the economy was very poor. Where you have a sparsely populated area, it's more difficult. But again, there much thought needs to be in how can we do it how can we be sure that people can get the care they need when they need it? In every community, primary health care activities occur every month. So curative care is available 24 hours a day. Complicated cases are referred to the hospital, but there's, there, there, there are not many, very many, maybe 2%, 3%. Most everything could be handled locally. Uh, a preschool clinic was held in every village, not at the health center. The health center nurse would go to each village once a month and there do the preschool clinic. You couldn't ask 20, uh, 1,200 mothers to come to the health center once a month. We asked the nurse to go to each village, so he'd be going out maybe six times a month to the six villages or eight times a month to their villages, taking that service to them. The antinatal clinics, however, were at the health center and the vaccination program at the health center. And then once a month, we encouraged communities to develop a what we called a community development committee to oversee all of the development activities in their community and the nurse would meet with them each month. Now let me add something here. Let's go back. <clears throat> Maternities. And I was listening to Kathleen Holzer at 2 o'clock in her program in Sudan especially, but numerous other countries. Uh, how could we get maternity services throughout this network? We knew we couldn't train nurse midwives and post them out there. Well, I mean, we could train them, we could post them out there, but a young man from Kinshasa would come along and marry them and off they'd go. So how could we keep women trained as midwives to stay out in those bush centers? And we wrestled with that. And actually it was a no-brainer. But it took our brains a little while to come up with the obvious answer these nurse practitioners, all men, were married. They had wives. 
And quite a number of their wives had been to secondary school. We trained their wives. So now the husband was the nurse practitioner. The wife was the midwife. We now have maternities in probably half of all of these places so that normal deliveries can happen out here. In 61, we did about 1,200 deliveries a year here. And all the rest were out in, in homes. In 1996, I think we did 500 deliveries here. But close to 4,000 deliveries altogether in maternities. Our C-section rate in 1961 was 3 to 4%. Our C-section rate in 96 was 20%. Now, I think you can figure out what was happening. That was progress. Because normal deliveries were out here. Triage was being done out here. High-risk pregnancies were now coming in here. That's why we had to do so many C-sections. And the maternal mortality in a paper written by one of our Congolese physicians a year ago was 15 per 10,000. So that's 0.15%. And Kathy said in her report that overall in the world, it's one out of every 31 deliveries ends up in a maternal death. Okay, uh, measles, polio, tetanus disappeared, nutritional status improving. Uh, and another very encouraging aspect of this, the government was watching what we were doing. And, of course, we were sending reports regularly to the government. I made occasional trips to the health ministry. They knew me. I knew them. And they finally said, we like this. Come and help us plan for this type of program over the whole country. Congo now has close to 200 health zones like this, the majority of which are in church hospitals, mostly Protestant, some Catholic. So this is an extremely viable plan. It influences the government. It also influenced the World Health Organization. And it's influenced the U.S. government. The U.S. government likes this and has been heavily subsidizing these zones since 1982. Not taking over budgets, but providing uh, costs for vehicles and training costs and supervision costs, things which the local budget couldn't uh, support. We've brought in agricultural um, a component into this. The church is active. It strengthens the local church. Uh, now, <clears throat> how do we finance this? With great difficulty. <laughs> but it is a fee-for-service program. We don't give free care. We never did. And I'm grateful to my missionary forebears who decided that way back in the 20s. People pay. The sad reality is the average income now in the rural area, in the richest country in Africa, is about $50 a year. And that's because of the total corruption, mismanagement, the horrible state of affairs in the country. But they still pay. Now, they won't pay 
for preventive services. And it took us a while to realize that and to figure out what to do. They won't pray for a preschool clinic or an antenatal clinic, and certainly not for the vaccination program. But to run them costs us money. We have to cover those fees, and we don't want to cover them with grants from churches in the United States. So what did we do? We raised the price of aspirin. Well, Tylenol, if you will now. Not penicillin, not essential medicines, but other medicines that they would buy, you know, vitamins and that sort of thing. We also raised somewhat the cost of surgery. Curative care can cover the costs of these preventive services. Uh, we do take care of people who have nothing. But we ask them why they have nothing. And we work with people to help them understand money and planning and foresight. This is cultural education. And it's biblical. And God talks a great deal about planning. We go all the way back to Joseph and Nehemiah and Proverbs and much of what Jesus said. And changes are occurring and people are realizing that God wants us to manage our lives properly. Okay, I mentioned that we avoid free care at Bill's dependency. We do get a lot of outside resources that helps build buildings, get equipment, provide transport costs, and so on. Anything that is non-recurrable, use outside funds for if you need to. Recurring costs, regular budgets, stay away from outside funds if at all possible. We had to do many economic gymnastics to do this. I won't go into that because Congo was <laughs> such a poorly managed economy. It just went to zero. Uh, but we built a very simple but easily handleable accounting system so that these are our personnel know how to record receipts and expenses. Uh, the accounts are transparent. They are checked periodically, regularly by uh, certain of our staff, and it works. But underneath all of this is the biblical worldview. And we talked about that this morning. Plus an understanding of how culture works. And keep in mind, medical services, health services, are what you would call Western programs. They are based on principles from our Western culture. But where do those principles come from? They come from the Bible. So when we're teaching these principles, we're not teaching American culture. We're not even teaching Western culture. We're teaching biblical culture. But unless we do, if we turn a program over to African people or Papua New Guinean people or Latin American people, they'll... They'll implode because the foundation isn't there unless we have transferred that foundation. So that's why understanding the biblical values and cultural dynamics is so important.
Well, this is putting into practice Jesus' mandate. Uh, and I can assure you Jesus had been very much a part of this from the very beginning. Uh, and the wisdom that has come from him has helped. And, of course, this is almost entirely Congolese. And we worked together. I never told them what to do. We would sit down and talk. And we would work these things out together and pray a lot and move ahead. Okay. Um, we do now have a couple of courses uh, on, in a DVD format. One is on how do you care for the whole person. And this God showed us when we were in Congo, how to bring together care for body, mind, and spirit in the clinic. And I mean caring for people with anxiety, worry, jealousy, anger, destructive feelings and emotions, using more than just psychology, but using the incredibly powerful healing resources of Scripture and of faith in Jesus. The second one, and it's just been finished, is Principles and Practice of Community Health. That's a 30-lesson course by DVD, and that's how you can get them. They're a little expensive, $600, because it costs us an arm and a leg to produce them. Uh, But there's email interaction um, built into them with me, and for this one with uh, Dr. O'Donnell, so that we can work with you. Okay. Any questions? This has been kind of a rapid-fire presentation. Uh, So if you've got comments, critiques, questions, whatever. Yes? I just had a question about training um, men as nurse practitioners and women as nurses. Mm -hmm. Um, Why did you start training out men as nurses? Okay, she's asking why did we train men as nurse practitioners, women as nurses and midwives. And it was basically because we wanted to post them throughout this whole district. And as I mentioned with midwives, a young girl is trained and goes off to some place and the chances are good she's soon going to get married, and she'll go to wherever her husband is. So now here's a hole we have to fill. And we knew we could never fill up all those holes by training more and more women. And so you post a man out there, and he'll go find him a wife from somewhere. She'll come and live with him. So he'll stay. So it's more related to the logistics of it than gender or anything like that. Uh... And it's interesting to see the shift in gender in nurses training here in America. And I think that's a good shift. And also the the incredible shift in gender in training physicians. I think 50% of medical students are women. There were five girls in my medical school class. And so, you know, we're making progress. (laughs) But as I say, the reasons were logistic.
Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Oh, yes. And, of course, all of our staff were on salary. And here is real gymnastics. You want to pay them a decent wage. They have a wife and children. But the money that you have to pay them comes from the poor people. If you increase what you're charging the poor people in order to give them a decent salary, it's too much for the poor people. And so how do you balance this? And we were constantly working with that. And, of course, in an economy that was just evaporating. Uh, in 1967, the day our youngest son was born, President Mobutu came out with new currency. It was called the Zaire. It was worth $2. And our people were absolutely delighted. Our money is worth twice American money. When we left in 1996, $1 was worth 600 billion Zaires. And that was the money we had to work with. We had to accept it and figure out how to convert it into dollars because all our medicine had to come from Europe. So, like I say, uh, we got into economics. But yes, and part of this problem of corruption all over the world is because salaries are unstable and sometimes even non-existent. So people have to take bribes in order to eat. Our, our people don't do that, don't have to do that, because they're getting a salary. Now, I, I hesitate to tell you what they're getting. Probably one of those health center nurses is getting $50 a, a month. But when the average income is $50 a year, well, that's, that's relatively good. Our Congolese doctors... And we now have a staff of several Congolese doctors. We have a family medicine residency training program. But our head doctor probably gets $500 a month. This is a problem the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons is facing. They're training uh, African surgeons. And when they get through, in theory, they're to go back to the mission hospitals they came from. We've been corresponding with one who was headed back to the Nebobongo Hospital in northeast Congo, where the head doctor there gets $30 a month because the economy is zero. And this man says, I need at least $1,000 a month. And his wife is a pediatrician. That's another $500. Where's that money going to come from? Uh, Congo is a bad scenario, but it's it's similar situations in the French Congo, in Cameroon, and many of the African nations. Yes? Your DVD on community health, how is that related to change? Is, it, is there any connection between the two? Well, they're complementary. Che goes into a great deal of detail on how the different things you talk about in nutrition and agriculture and, of course, in the scripture and so on, and how you train village people to be community health evangelists or educators. 
this course is talking about the foundations. Um, cultural assumptions. Uh, <clears throat> and how can we understand the thinking of tribal people, animistic people? And then how can we discover within their thinking links to modern scientific thinking? If we just teach them physical cause and effect of diseases, they won't understand it. But if we understand their way of thinking about illness and why people get sick, then we can find links into which physical cause and effect relationships can be brought in, in terms they can understand. That's the kind of thing we talk about. And if you want to hear more, come at 9 o'clock tomorrow. I'll be telling a fairly long story of how I got into that and learned that. Yes, sir. Okay, you're going to have to relay that a little stronger. What is your hope for the future of the Congo today, and I guess specifically for medicine in, in the Congo? Well, our biggest hope for transformation in Congo is its young people. Uh, back in the early 80s, Scripture Union became very, very spiritually alive. And young people's groups all across Congo got into the word. And it made a difference. It is making a difference. Our people know how to pray. And there's a great deal of uh, spiritual activity on the grassroots level. And that, of course, is what we want to encourage. There is some stability that's returned to the government over most of the country. The violence that you hear about is just in a very small uh, section of the country. Uh, but most of the country is now fairly stable. But again, until the government knows how to plan, knows how to manage, knows responsible uh, responsibility, transparent accounting, and so forth, it's going to be a very, very long haul. Now, are we needed? Yes. Uh, because we, from the West bring in these cultural resources that are so necessary to bring about that transformation. But we need to know how to do it. And that's why these uh, uh, courses are available. And because this is helping to equip you to do this kind of transfer, not only of skills, but a basic understanding of life, of health, of disease, of God, and how we are to live. Now, one thing God said, do everything in order, do everything on time, and it's time to quit. <laughs> Uh, so our time is up, but if you have more questions, come on up and we'll chat. And enjoy your supper. Thank you.